Good morning, dear saints and blessed epiphany. Welcome to this special First Friday free text episode of Thy Strong Word. Today is February 2nd and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. February 2nd is also the day when the church commemorates the purification of Mary and the presentation of our Lord. Both of these events, the purification of Mary, also known as Candlemas, reflects upon Mary's ritual purification as prescribed by Jewish law and the presentation of our Lord being presented in the temple. They both highlight the revelation of Jesus as the light of the world. And you, friends, are called by God to shine the light of Christ in your lives, too. In Matthew 5, Jesus speaks to his followers during the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Philippians 2, Paul encourages us. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Well, dear lights of Christ, Have you ever thought about how Christians might just be called to engage in the public square differently from the way the rest of the world does? How can Christians navigate the complex world of politics while staying true to their biblical values? That is our topic for today. But first, whether it's over the air, online at KFUO.org or using the KFUO app or as a podcast, even on your smart speaker, wow, there's so many ways to connect. doesn't matter to me how you join. I'm just glad you're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more at lhfmissions.org. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can phone into the studio. That number is 800-730-2727. Or you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com or even find me on Facebook. I'm always eager to hear your comments and questions, and I will do my best to get them out on the air. Joining us this morning is one of my favorite professors from my time at seminary. It's the Reverend Dr. Joel Bierman, Systematics Professor at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Good morning, Professor Bierman. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you. Today is a special episode because on these first Fridays, we take a break from our regular study. Right now we're in Lamentations to focus on, you know, a topic of interest. And today's topic is, as you already heard, a Christian approach to political discourse. Now, I've heard you present and teach on this topic at length, so I'm very glad to have you here as we kind of wade into what could be controversial waters. I don't think so that much, but it can be out in this world. So thanks so much for being here. Would would you start our time together in prayer, though, brother? Absolutely. Lord God, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking and our acting, that both are in accord with your will and purposes, and help us through this time to consider well the truth you've given us about your world around and the responsibility we have as your people to speak your truth into that world. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Tell a little bit about yourself and how God works through you as a professor and a little bit about your family, if you wish, as much or as little as you'd like to share with the folks at home. All right. I'll keep it relatively brief. Um, I was raised in the church and grew up 
planning to be a pastor, and so that's what happened. I served as a parish pastor for 11 years, and then I went back to St. Louis and did my PhD and ended up teaching at the seminary since then. So I've been teaching at the seminar for about 22 years and enjoying that very much. I teach in the Department of Systematic Theology, which means I am interested in doctrine, especially in questions of ethics, law, church, state kinds of things. Um, married, we have three children who are all married, and they have a lot of kids. We've got um, 10 grandkids and number 11 on the way. So God's richly blessed me. Well, it sounds like you're also pretty busy. So I'm thankful that you've taken some time to be with us. Um, I just have a few questions on hand. I have some questions from our listening audience too, that I'd love to hear you address, but let's begin the conversation very simply, or perhaps maybe not so simply. Should a Christian even engage in the political realm of this world, especially as wrought with division and sinfulness as it is? And the quick answer is yes. Um, as the same answer that we've always given, the Christian is created to be active in God's world, and it is God's world. And that's probably the first step we need to start if we're going to be thinking rightly about the relationship between church and state or Christian and the political world, is to recognize this is, this is God's creation. This is God's world. And God works through political means to accomplish his ends. And he's always done that. So Christians can never escape from the world or wash their hands of the political responsibilities as if somehow it might dirty them or pollute them. We have a responsibility to be engaged in that world, and we have to do that. Now, Christians might argue, though, that, you know, the world as it is, we see how politics is used for anti-Christian means. Mm -hmm. It feels like we don't have any impact. Um, And then they might even quote, like, from history, people like Nero and Stalin and Hitler, it it seems that God places evil people in leading nations. That's a that's a comment from one of the listeners, a pastor listener. So, you know, how do we understand it being God's world if God seems to be um, allowing those to be in positions of power that just are completely against his will? Yeah, that's a great question because we hear one thing, God's in control, and this is God's creation, this is God's government, and then we see how unchristian they are and how even evil and opposed to God's purposes these leaders are, and we don't understand how it can fit together. This is where it's really helpful to remember that Romans 13, where St. Paul teaches us to be obedient to the government because God has given the government the sword, that Paul wrote that about the emperor, the Roman emperor, who at that time was Nero. And Nero was no friend of Christianity. Uh, When Paul wrote it, Nero wasn't quite over the top yet. But nevertheless, the point is that it's not a matter of the piety or the, even the Christian f- commitment or even the um, justice of a government. The government is there because God put it there, and their job is to an- enforce justice. There is a right way for the government to function according to God's word. If it refuses to do that, it doesn't mean we have the now freedom to say, well, I don't have to obey anymore. Or I can do what I want. No, it's still the government God has put there for whatever reason, and it's really not our place to decide why or why God is doing it or why he shouldn't be doing it or why this government is somehow now ungodly and no longer needs to be obeyed. It's not really our call to get to make that decision. This really came to a head, as everyone is keenly aware, a few years ago, at least within, I guess, our recent memory, when a lot of folks were kind of dividing, even good Christian folks, right? They were dividing themselves between Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities people, and you know, uh, you must obey God rather than man. Um, and it was because of perceived or actual 
uh, abuse by governing authorities against folks. Using the COVID-19 situation and some of the lockdowns and other things that even now, looking back from uh, three years later, we see that even courts have determined some was unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. How, how do we uh, – I have two questions. Not really how we should have responded, although you can certainly address that, but how do we help Christians move on from that? Or how do we help Christians understand a, a better way to move on or maybe – they acted the right way. I don't know. How, how do you see yeah, that? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, and so many things are going to just keep on being thought about regarding the whole pandemic and the response of the world and the governments to that. I, I'm in the opinion that's probably going to be studied for a few generations because it's so fascinating, all the things that happened and how people responded on so many levels are so many interesting things. But I think it's what's clear here is, and you cited both of the relevant verses, we're supposed to be obedient to those in authority, but we also must obey God, not men, the Acts 5.31 caveat. So God always gives us the final direction and we follow him. But part of what God has told us to do is to be obedient to government. So that puts us in tight spots sometimes. How far do you go? How much do you obey? When do you stop being obedient? And not all Christians are going to agree on that. I think the key is bottom line is you need to always be asking yourself, am I doing what I'm doing out of my witness to Christ and my desire to speak his truth and show his truth in the world? Or am I doing it out of fear or out of anger or out of some sort of mistaken notion of my inalienable rights that are being trounced on and I need to have my rights defended? When people start trying to defend their rights, I think they're on shaky ground. And when people are starting to strike out against evil because they have to re, you know, overcome this, well, that's really not our job. That's God's job. Our job is to speak God's truth, defend those who are powerless, and speak up for those who are marginalized. But it's not our job to try to enforce um, what the government's supposed to be doing. We can call it to task. And in a democracy, we have even more latitude because we get to vote, we get to speak, we get to have an active voice. But always the goal, and this is the key thing I'm trying to get at here, always the goal is the question, is what I'm doing speaking God's truth to the world around me and advancing the gospel, or am I thwarting it? And are my motivations being driven by my desire to protect my rights or protect my turf or protect my freedom of religion? Or am I being driven by my desire that God's word is clearly heard by those around me and that those who are being um, treated unjustly are being treated the way they should be treated? What's driving me? Yes, and and I think pastors had to discern that a lot as we dealt with parishioners who suddenly was, say, against their religious beliefs to wear a mask when that's never been even considered within the realm. So how do we navigate these things? And and so I like what you say. You know, it's it is about intentionality. It is about what we want to accomplish. Are we just trying to stir up trouble? Are we trying to assert our rights over and against? Well, let's talk about rights. So we as American citizens are uh, engaged in a form of government that is dramatically different from the government that was experienced by the first Christians, experienced by Luther. And so we have an integral part in our government, whether it feels like it or not. Uh, and so you've already said that participation is is incredibly important and necessary. But when we are in the public square, or the political square, and this comes from a listener too, do we talk is it useful to bring up our Bibles and say, you know, God says thou shalt not murder, therefore there should be no abortion? Mm. Or is there 
a more efficient way or a more appropriate way to reach hearts by, say, using natural law? Every situation will call for discernment and the right way to go. Um, the, the, it, the reality is that God's world needs to function according to God's will, which is the law. And so that means that anybody who's being a good ruler is going to be paying attention to what God has laid down. This is how things should work. And so the church, I would argue, also has a responsibility to remind the world of that task and of that um, obligation. So when the government is falling short, can the church, can a Christian say, hey, stop it. You need to get your act together. Absolutely, we can do that. And when we do that, probably the best recourse is usually not going to be to marshal our Bible passages or our Book of Concord quotes, but probably the better course is going to be to make a compelling argument based on common sense, what's good for the most people, what has utilitarian benefits. This is what drives our American context. Our American context is interested in utilitarian outcomes, where we are the ultimate pragmatic people in the world. And so if you're going to make an argument that's going to be compelling, it's good to make it based on pragmatics and what works. You can always also make an appeal to justice issues. And ultimately, you can even say, you know, the creator of the universe has not put things together that way. You can make that kind of argument, whether it's going to get a hearing. It might. It might not. As Christians, ultimately, whether anybody listens to us is not really the issue. The issue is, are we being faithful to what God has asked us to do? What role did churches, do you think, in your estimation, play in fostering environments where we can have conversations about politics and social issues? And and to just elaborate to make it more clear, is there a place for churches to help inform people about specific political issues from a faith perspective? Yes. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, the old adage is that you shouldn't mix church and politics or religion and politics. And it was, it was even been taught rather vehemently in the church that politics has no place in the church and especially no place in the pulpit. Uh, I really challenge people who have that attitude to read some Luther and see what Luther said about it. Luther was quite clear that the church and the state are to be working together to accomplish God's purposes for the sake of the world. The church has the task of proclaiming the gospel, bringing forgiveness of sins, and making people right with God. The state has the task of bringing God's justice to people, helping the marginalized to be cared for, helping those who are being downtrodden to be uplifted, and to punish wickedness and to stop evil from happening. They work together on that. So when the church is dropping the ball, the state can come in and say, hey, get your act together. This is why Luther made his appeal to the Christian nobility. The church was not functioning well. He wanted the politicians to fix it. It's a scandalous idea, but Luther endorsed it. And then when you have the state not doing their job well, should the church be saying, hey, get your act together, state. You're not doing what you should do. And the answer is yes. So Part of that then means also teaching our people to think rightly about their politics. And I think this gets makes people a lot of times nervous, but the reality is God has a way for us to think about our entire lives, how our families function, how we function at work, how we raise our kids, how we treat one another in our, in our neighborhoods, and how we handle ourselves politically. 
God cares about all of that. So the very idea that a pastor can't broach the political realm because it's off limits is nonsense. There's nothing off limits from God's truth. So when a pastor wants to address something politically, can he do it from the pulpit? And the answer is yes. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to stand up and endorse a politician or tell people necessarily don't vote this or vote for this. However, are there right and wrong ways for us to function in the world? Are there right causes and wrong causes? Are there certain political positions that are against God's truth? And I think on all those, we'd have to say, yes, sorting it out is not simple. There's not a single party in the American context right now that has a Christian position right down the line all the way that we could say, there it is, that's mine, unless it's some third party or seventh party out there I'm not aware of. But the Republican and the Democrat platforms, both of them have things that are problematic and things that are in line with God's purposes. So it's not simple. And it's not a matter of endorsing one particular platform. And I think a lot of Christians get really messed up on this thing because they have a tendency to associate conservative with their faith I'm a conservative Christian, so therefore mm-hmm. I'm a conservative politician, and they start to kind of see this as a seamless cloth, all one thing is all just to be conservative, or on the other hand, to be liberal. And it's not nearly that simple. And so we need to be able to learn to think politically the way God would have us think, and to approach our political involvement and our political activity, also from the standpoint of what is God calling me to do? And what's my motivation for doing this? And how am I serving my neighbor by doing this? So it's not so much an issue of who would Jesus vote for. (laughs) It's about how we live out our lives. With that said, though, well, well, go ahead. Yeah, it is that. But um, I'm of the opinion that you can go into the voting booth and sin by how you vote. I really think there's truth to that. I think if you're voting for a candidate that you know is going to be violating God's will on some clear issue and you vote for him anyway, I think you're accountable for that. Now, does that mean there's a perfect candidate who earns your vote? Likely not. And so in the political realm, things get messy. And this was kind of what you alluded to at the very beginning of of the show, and this is a point worth hearing, is... When we try to engage the world around us, it gets messy, and there aren't always clear-cut paths and avenues, and this is especially true in politics. So if you want to get involved in politics, are you going to be involved in compromise? Yeah, especially in a democratic republic in which we live, compromise is the name of the game. It's how it's built to work. And so you're always making compromises. And if you're going to be a person who says, well, no, there's only one right way, you're not going to last long in the political sphere. But if you're going to try to engage the political sphere faithfully, you're going to have to say, okay, I'm going to make some compromises here. Maybe I vote for a person that I find repugnant or has a lot of things right and some things wrong. So I'll vote for this person because I think for the overall good, it's going to accomplish more. And I'll ask God's forgiveness for the sin that comes with it. I couldn't do it perfectly. And we rarely can do it perfectly in the world. And yet we strive to serve those around us by not evading our responsibility, but taking it seriously and doing what we can. So from a argument I could build, I would say that a Christian has a responsibility to vote and then to vote for a person who's not going to make their life better or not going to make them happy, but vote for a person who is going to more nearly and more rightly uphold God's truth for the sake of all people. That's our criteria when it comes to voting. Now, I've held a couple of very small um, political offices, very, very small. How good for you. (laughs) Um, But my point is, 
It was such a struggle, though, because of just what you said. There is no party that perfectly aligns with Christian belief. And even if you have a group of 10 Christians in a room, you're not going to find a party that's going to align with any of them, really. Exactly. So there were compromises. Um, Now, I was on a school board, a municipal school board. Um, I uh, had to declare a party, which was the most consistent with my beliefs. But then there are folks out there that are frustrated with our process because let's say you want to be that seventh, third party uh, because it aligns with you. You'll be accused of throwing away your vote, et cetera, et cetera. Is there an argument for the lesser evil? Is are there issues upon which you can the Christian in your estimation, should never compromise. Well, sure. I mean, and this gets into kind of personal conscience and the things that you know matter to you and how where you come down. And on those on those issues, you're accountable to God for what you know is right, and you need to do it. But is there room? Is there latitude within a Christian way of thinking about my responsibility to the world to say there are times when I need to go for a lesser evil? I think, yes. I mean, that's this is how this works. You have to make decisions. This is the way ethics works. This is the way it works when we live in this messy world. We live in a broken world. It's not the way it should be. And so it's always a mess. And we're always having to try to sort things out that aren't ideal. So is it better to be involved in the political process and to bring a voice that tries to bring things more nearly back to God's purposes, even if you can't do it perfectly? Yeah, I think absolutely that's better. And should more Christians be engaged in the political realm? Absolutely. Um, The sense that, oh, I'll get dirty doing it. Yeah. And that's why there's grace. And that's why you know you stand before God as a forgiven sinner, but you're doing what you can and you're not avoiding things. So I think, you know, your experience as a school board member, there were things that you knew there was, here's the clear answer. It's not going to happen. So I'll try to get it moved in the right direction and I'll vote for something that's less than ideal. Yeah, you do that. And if you feel compelled to ask God for forgiveness for that failure to do exactly right, then do that and you receive his forgiveness. But it doesn't mean you're um, freed from the responsibility because, uh uh-oh, I might get dirty in the process. Now, so far as which candidate do you support? It's tempting to say, I'm going to support only the best candidate. So you find one out there, some obscure candidate, and you write in that vote and you vote and you feel really good about it. And if you are convinced you need to do that, do it. And I'm glad for that. Go for that. And you have your, your clear conscience. But you cannot then judge your brother who says, well, the way I understand my responsibility is I have a vote and I'm going to vote for one of the two major candidates because that way my vote actually makes a difference. And that way I can actually maybe help the direction of the con- country instead of just trying to salve my conscience. There's room for that, too. And I don't think it's fair to consider one to be the definitive Christian response. There's room for both understandings, depending on how you understand your walk with Christ and what it means to serve your neighbor well. Mm. You know, and we have some prominent Lutherans, even a Lutheran pastor, I believe, who is in a state house. I have a member of my congregation who is a Minnesota senator, and we've had the discussions, you know, and, and I'm not speaking for him in any way at all. Yeah. But I, I but we've had discussions of like, well, let's say a bill comes up that says, you know, um, we're going to limit abortion to some amount. Yeah. And his, if his position is abortion is a, a an evil that should not exist at all, if he votes for that, he could do so knowing that that actually is going to limit it more than what his opponents would want to limit it if he didn't get that passed. Right. But then the people who are supporting him would say, no, you need to take a hardline stance. And if he did, if he voted no and that didn't pass, well, then a even worse bill would pass. So 
the first thing when we in this discussion is I said, well, if that should ever come up, this is exactly why we pray for you. That's right. This is a very hard job. Yes, it and, is. And, and that that brings me to another question from a listener about putting the best construction on potential opposing views. You know, I, I, I don't know where I got this idea, but I guess maybe just from my experience. But on the one hand, I don't think we put the best construction on things enough. And then sometimes I think we put such a good construction on it. That's all it is, as a false fa- facade. Yeah. And, and we're actually lying and, yeah. and being so sweet about it. Right. So I don't know. How how do we respectfully engage in politics, uh, especially with our neighbors, especially when it's yeah. not like with a candidate? Because I've never – and I'm pretty young, but I've never seen the world so divided. It, it's it's a it's a divided world, but you're young, and I am too, relatively historically, even though I'm in my sixties, because the world has been divis- divided often. And <clears throat> if you look back in history, there are plenty of examples of things being messed up and people not getting along. So. I, I tend to resist a little bit some of the hyper rhetoric of, oh, it's so divisive now. It's never been worse. Yeah, it's it's been worse. But yeah, it's divisive. Now, you, you make a great point, though. And I think the most important place that Christians should be paying attention to their witness is in their neighborhoods, in their workplaces, in their family relationships. That's where it matters the most. That's where you can make the most impact. Your vote is one thing. You do that, you know, whenever voting day comes, you go and you vote. Okay, did my civic duty. I stay tuned in. Great. But the biggest witness you're going to make and the witness that has the potential to make the greatest impact is absolutely in your personal relationships. So that's where you need to be asking the question, how do I convey God's truth well? And it's always a delicate thing. And we all know this. You know, how much do I smile and put up with my liberal neighbor? And how much do I speak truth to him? And finding the way through that is the challenge. Eighth commandment, you bet. Put on the put the best construction on things. But there's also speak the truth in love. And so You've got to hold all that together. I think one of the better ways approaches is to think I'm going to consistently live my life in a way that honors Christ and that serves my neighbor. And I'm going to do that all the time. So I pick up the garbage can rolling down the street from my neighbor and I smile and I talk to him. And when he tells me about his daughter dating his her girlfriend, you know, I was like, oh, what do I say? I think maybe often that you don't need to say anything because you've already established hopefully in your conversations that you are a Christian, you go to church, he sees you driving off to church every Sunday morning and the way you act. And so you make it clear that there's a way that you operate. And you might even think at that time, you say, you know, I think God has a different plan for how we live. Um, I'll keep on praying for you guys to have success and find joy in what you do. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to tell him he's sinning. He, he kind of probably knows that. And he already knows what you think about it. So he's going to be watching you closely to see how you react. Um, are you going to write him off? Or are you going to still stay engaged even though you stand on God's truth? And that always, as I said, puts us in a delicate spot and sometimes in an uncomfortable place. But we speak God's truth, but we don't have to be a jerk in doing it. And we don't have to be standoffish and somehow you know, declare their, their um, sin to them. My sense is that most people have a pretty good idea that something they're doing isn't quite on track, and they know very well what you as a Christian think about it, and then how you react, not just in disgust or in vitriol, but in a sense of care and concern for them having God's best, that's always the critical thing. You want God's best for them. You don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to be punished. You want God's best for them, and you know that by choosing a way of life that is opposed to God's purposes— 
they're not having God's best. And that's kind of the approach we have. Um, it's a compassion for them, not, not a desire to judge them, but a desire to have compassion. There's, there's this idea out there, especially online and, and internet discourse, and we're right up here against a break, but where there's this like, well, we got to own the other side, this idea that we have to give them gotcha questions or make them feel exposed. And yeah. we do it in this name of, well, you know, we've got them, so now they'll have to rethink their position. But the hostility between groups has never caused anybody to change their mind. Right. And we even see Jesus's example. We don't see him going around. There are cases where he does. but We don't see him generally going around and correcting everyone's theology. He would be very busy. Well, the, <laughs> wouldn't have wouldn't have time to get his mission done. That's right. So, and the, and the ones he does correct are the Pharisees who are supposed to know better. They're the ones who are the church of his day. He's not out there slamming the, the non-Christians. It's the people who are supposed to be on the right track. That's who he has his harshest words for. And that's something for us to keep in mind. Folks, this seems like a good place to take a pause, so don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return from our break, Professor Bierman and I will keep on discussing Christians and politics, and we'll move into some practical situations that Christians find themselves in. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Joel Bierman, Systematics Professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Don't forget, folks, that you can contact me at PastorBoo at gmail.com or on Facebook with your questions, comments, and more. You can also call in with your comments. The lines are open, 1-800-730-2727. Hi, Professor Bierman. Uh, it's been 72 years since H. Richard Niebuhr wrote Christ and Culture, and about 15 years since I believe you assigned me to read it, <laughs> and about and about 10 years since I actually wrote it, read it. So, right. so here's the, here's the oh, question. Don't tell me that now. I always have this illusion. <laughs> All my students read everything. <laughs> oh, but here's my question, though. So he talks about Christ and culture. He talks about Christ in paradox with culture, Christ, you know, against culture, etc. Yep. Um, I guess just either using that framework or another, talk in general about where the church, you know, fits in with the culture. Yeah. uh, Niebuhr's book is really helpful, in my opinion. His book has gotten a lot of flack over the years, but I find it useful because 
what he teaches is not every Christian responds to this interface between church and world in the same way. And it's helpful to remember that people who have good motivations and are reading their Bibles sometimes reach very different conclusions than we might about what the right thing to do is or how we should be thinking about it. And I think that's a good starting point on just being a, maybe a little more gracious toward others that they're not waking up in the morning trying to decide how they're going to ruin the world. They, they are, they're motivated as Christians to try to, you know, accomplish God's purposes. They just don't see it the way we would. So Niebuhr's five categories or five types, I think, remain helpful. And it's useful to remember that, you know, some people emphasize more the purity and staying away from what's evil. And that's where you get your Christ against culture kind of thing, the sort of Anabaptist tradition. Then you have our own tradition of the paradox, as he calls it, which Frankly, I don't like that word, but that's his word of the the tension that exists between the work of God in the secular realm and the work of God in the church and how those hold together. And that's what Luther is brilliant at describing. In my opinion, that is the church's teaching that is in the New Testament and the church's teaching all the way through. But then you have others who have a much more... Um, comfortable relationship. They see God at work in the world and accomplishing things through governments, which he does. And they even have the sense that what the church, what the world's doing is what the church is doing, and they're in lockstep together. And so when civil rights get passed, that's the gospel going forward. And we cringe when we hear that. But their mind, it all kind of holds together. So it's, it's helpful to remember that there are there's more than one approach to this. So Niebuhr's five categories have been around for, like you said, 70 years and seem, have withheld a lot of passage of time. Uh, another author I like a lot, who I've learned a lot from, is James Davison Hunter. He wrote a book, uh, I guess about 12 years ago now, called To to change the world, which I think is a very good book. And he talks in there a couple key things I found helpful. He, he describes the three divisions among sort of how Christians function nowadays as you've got the Christian left and you've got the Christian right and the sort of the, the ways they kind of angle against each other and the kind of the tensions that are going on there between those groups. And I think it's really helpful as he kind of explores that. And he even then has just, he's got, you got your Christian left, which are your kind of traditional mainline denominations, your Christian right, which tends to be like your evangelicals, the James Dobson sort of of the world and that kind of group. Then you have your Christ against the, um, what he calls neo-Anabaptist tradition. And those are the three categories he has. And I think that captures pretty well where Christianity is today on the face of it in the U.S. So he's useful. The other thing he's really good about is he talks often about the responsibility of the Christian is what he calls faithful presence. And the idea that in whatever context you find yourself, in whatever vocations you happen to be doing, your task is to be bringing the reality of Christ to bear in that situation. I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, but your point on the categories that Niebuhr brings up is it's a good tool to think about how do I engage the world? How do other Christians engage the world? Why are we doing this differently? And it's good to remember that the way an evangelical sees things and the way a Lutheran sees things are not the same. My experience is a lot of Lutherans get involved, you know, in, the, in trying to make the world better and they get involved in politics and they end up acting more like an evangelical or more with an evangelical's kind of attitude and approaches than what a Lutheran would actually have. And so it's good to kind of think through how are we approaching this? Why are we doing what we're doing? What are we hoping to accomplish? What are we trying to try to um, gain through all this? 
I mean, just for clarity, are you putting a value judgment on one over the other, suggesting that it might be better, or is it just a description of the different ways? In no, which I'm putting a value judgment. I'm a Lutheran. I have I have a stake in this. <laughs> I have a dog in this yeah, sure. fight, and I would say that the um, Christ and culture intention is the right biblical way. That's what I see Paul doing. This is how I see Christ operating. I think this is the right way. The idea of the Anabaptist tradition of rejecting the culture and you know circling the wagons and pulling off and being isolated. There's no room for that. We have to engage the world. This is God's world. We're supposed to witness it. We can't we can't forsake it. So there's not there's not acceptable. And the notion that somehow, you know, the world is accomplishing the gospel, oh, that's just kind of nonsense. The world's broken. And if you ignore the brokenness of the world and you ignore the um, evil of the world, um, and if you equate the gospel with bringing justice, you're losing the heart of the gospel. So I think there is a preferred way forward. And I think even the Lutheran position will even butt up against a kind of a traditional evangelical position. And here's the big difference. The Typical evangelical and what Niebuhr would call this Christ transforming culture, his final fifth category. The goal there is to try to build a Christian culture now. See, as a Lutheran, I, I don't share that goal. Do I strive to try to make the world better, more nearly just? All the time. I'll keep on voting. I'll keep on getting involved. I'll keep on doing things. But I know that because of all that has been taught to me by Christ and in the scriptures, I know it's not going to happen. We live in a broken world. And until Christ comes again, it will remain a broken world. There is no such thing as a Christian government. And the very notion of trying to get a Christian America and a Christian government is sort of wrongheaded from the get-go. It's not our objective. Our objective is to make the world more nearly just, less less violent, less um, evil. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to keep the wheels from falling off all the way. And that's enough in the world. That's what we'd strive for. And at the same time, preach the forgiveness of Christ, make people know the, the righteousness they have in Christ and accomplish that. So we have a much more I'll say realistic or um, less ambitious outlook or goal for the world than typical evangelicals do. And I think too many Lutherans lose that. And then we start acting weird. We start trying to like, this is the ultimate election. Oh my goodness, this is it. This is going to define our world. No, it doesn't work that way. Christ is in charge. He always has been. Elections matter, but they don't matter for the eternity. It's, It's God's creation. And we just have a kind of a different attitude that I think needs to pervade how we operate. Now, you mentioned a couple of things, which brings to my mind uh, this question. Uh, you're as a student of both history and theology. Uh, in your estimation, was America founded as a Christian nation? <laughs> you bring up the always the non-controversial issue. Um, <laughs> were there Christians involved in the founding of America? Absolutely. Very sincere, great Christian men, and perhaps maybe even the majority were Christian. I I haven't done enough careful research to see who all signed the Constitution and the Declaration to see where they all fall. But were were there Christians involved? Yes. I, I won't debate that. And were they driven, but were most of the founding fathers driven by a what I would call basically biblical worldview of there's a creator to whom we are responsible? Yes. However, the express 
Christian confession was never a foundation of our of our country. Our country was founded on the idea that there's a creator to whom we are accountable and we need to follow through on what he would have us do. That's fine, but that's deism. Deism believes that too. Um, Jefferson is a great example of that. Um, Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. Uh, he had his Bible all cut up with all the miracles and all the Jesus stuff taken out of it, and you have a nice morality left. That's what he liked. And so that's not Christian. That's It's just, it's noble, It's there's character involved, it's, it's all very nice, but it's not Christian. So to say this is a Christian nation, no, it's not. And I would argue it never has been. Has it been very amenable to Christianity? Yes. Were there a lot of Christian ideas and Christian principles at work in the founding of the country? Absolutely. But there were also a lot of Enlightenment ideas. And I would contend that if you really study our Constitution, and especially like things like the Declaration of Independence, the Enlightenment ideas are driving the fundamental structure of how things operate far more than a biblical way of operating. They're not incompatible at that time, especially, but it's, it's uh, the enlightenment that has more to do with our country and the way it's structured than it is the Bible. In a pluralistic society in which we live, especially one by which we include, uh, I'm sorry, we, we, we get the benefits of religious freedom. We're included in right. that. Shouldn't we as Christians also defend other religions' abilities to coexist peacefully with us? Yeah, you see, that gets so weird, doesn't it? Because we have this idea that religious freedom is an essential right, and we should fight for that religious freedom. Okay, but see, that's not in the Bible. What you get in the Bible is worship me alone and hold to, hold to what's true. So we just do that. Whether or not a government allows us to do it, kind of immaterial. Paul didn't stop worshiping God when the Rome told him to stop it. And Luther didn't stop teaching the truth when the Pope or the emperor said, stop it. And so we do what we do. And it doesn't matter if anybody endorses it or not. Uh, And so the idea that we somehow defend our right to worship is just wrongheaded. That's how enlightenment rights-based people think. And Americans are all about rights. And way too many Christian Americans start thinking in the terms of rights. But this is not a biblical way to think about things. The biblical way to think about things is grace, which means I don't deserve a thing, and yet God gives it to me. Now, as a citizen of this country, we have a great gift because we are extended rights by our country. And I know that fires people up. They say, no, I have inherent rights. No, Mm -hmm. you don't. I will push back against that. You have no See, I'll, I'll challenge your inherent rights. Imagine standing in front of God and saying, God, I have a right. Give me a break. We don't have that ability to stand in front of God and demand our rights. We, we receive what God gives to us. Now, the particular thing you're getting at is this right to worship. So if I have a right to worship, I'm going to defend that right. Well, then by extension, I should be defending the right of a Muslim to worship and a, and a, anybody else to worship or a Wiccan to worship. And then it starts getting a little weird. We get a little bit nervous. And we should, because you see, the very notion of defending somebody's right to worship because it's a fundamental biblical idea is nonsense. God says there's one way to worship is through Christ. He is the only way of salvation. And the idea that I want other people to have the ability to worship the way they want because that's their right, they have free will, none of those ideas is Christian. So we get these weird sorts of things. Now, do I think by and large, having people, giving people the liberty to choose their own choice of how they want to worship is better than dictating they may not worship or they have to worship this particular thing? Sure, that's better. And so a democratic republic giving that kind of latitude is a smarter 
better way to go in a pluralistic world. But the notion that somehow Christians should be fighting tooth and nail for somebody's right to worship false false doctrine. No, we shouldn't be. We should be being a little bit more selective, a little bit more careful about the things we really stand for. Because if Christ said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, that's what's true. And I don't want people teaching false doctrine. I don't want people believing falsehood. And so why should I defend somebody's right to continue to believe falsehood? I'm not really interested in that. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Uh, One, at least one, Christian Navy veteran found himself in that position at the Iowa State Capitol, where he destroyed part of a satanic temple idol, which Mm. was set up there. He's recently been charged with a hate crime because of his actions. His actions... Uh, foolish and looks bad on the Christian witness or bold and brave or some third thing that I haven't thought of. (laughs) No, that's that's a great concrete example. And I would say that he, his actions probably ended up hurting the Christian witness more than helping it because it just, he looks like a, a religious fanatic and people say, see, they're intolerant and there's, they have no room for anything else. So are there other avenues to try to get rid of the satanic display in the church, in the state house? Sure. And you can pursue those and they might be more mild. They might seem like you're not doing your, your due diligence, but by Working through the right channels, which God gives us to do, I think that's the better response than going out and chopping up a satanic image. Because in my opinion, I would argue you're really not advancing the cause of the Christian confession. You're probably actually getting in the way of it. So regardless of the nature of the founding of America, whether it was you know explicitly Christian or not, and I tend to agree with you, especially in regards to the Enlightenment. Yeah. Christians today, though. Do we or are we, um, in your estimation, experiencing more hurdles and persecutions from government? I mean, it seems to be pretty clear that we don't have the favor anymore. I think that's exactly right. Um, For a long time, our country... considered itself Christian, and Christians were given special privileges, and, and, you know, we had blue laws uh, upholding Christian values and Christian ideas, and people liked that, and people, and that's what they remember. That's why they called it a Christian nation, and they, and they missed that. But the, um, and, but the reality is the tide has turned, and the, the church is no longer seen as a special institution helping the world. In a lot of the minds of people, the church is a liability. And the hate crime idea that, you know, if you say Jesus is the only way of salvation, that's not a doctrinal statement. That's a hate statement, because now you've just consigned somebody to hell and you hate them. And that's the world we're living in. Um I've lived through this, and uh, you're a little younger, and you have seen the tail end of it, but I have watched the the change from the church being honored and privileged still in the society to it being seen as a detriment and a liability. And I think that's going to continue. And I don't think, frankly, it matters who we vote into office or what legislation gets passed. The culture is much bigger and much more forceful than merely the government at the time. And the culture in the West is clearly on a track of this kind of self-fulfillment, self, um, 
defining. And we haven't seen the end of that yet. We're going to keep on playing that out. And that means the church is going to be increasingly seen as um, getting in the way of self-expression, um, limiting what's kind or what's seen, seen as loving. It's so weird because now the church is actually looked at as a threat to the loving thing because we don't embrace gay marriage or transsexual kinds of things. And so therefore we are not loving. And it's hard for Christians to get used to that, but that's the score. That's the reality. And I think we need to buckle down and realize this is where we're headed. This is the future. The The church is no longer a mainstream positive thing in the country, but we are becoming demarginalized. That's our future. And you can resist it and kick against it and scream, oh, no, we've got to win back what we had. I think that's a lost cause. We need to buckle down and realize what it's going to mean for us to be a minority voice and what that looks like. The church has been there before, and we've done just fine. And so I'm not too worried, but we need to change our own thinking about it and accept a little bit more of our reality. You have the vocation of forming pastors, and pastors have the vocation of forming parishioners, all, of course, with God's word. Um, What advice can you give pastors like me and those who are listening and anybody who might end up listening? How do we prepare our people for this new worldview that we are encountering without, I guess, dedicating our churches to just what the world might consider political issues. I mean, how do we do that? Yeah, and in fact, it's probably the opposite. You don't get all up up into the political things, you know, on a kind of direct way. Instead, I think the most important thing you do is you teach men to be fathers and husbands who follow Christ. You teach women to be mothers and wives who follow Christ. And you teach the families to be strong places that we're going to cultivate a way of living in this world without fear, without worry. We're not hand-wringing, oh my goodness. No, we have confidence. Jesus is Lord. And he is. Let's take that seriously. If Jesus is Lord, we've got nothing to worry about. Let's engage the world. Let's be confident of who we are. Let's raise our families to be confident followers of Christ. What pastors should be focusing on is the formation of their families. So they're building strong families, and those children are being raised in the truth. The moms and dads and adults are being raised to follow Christ in all of their vocations. Instead of having this silly bifurcation. I come to church, hear about Jesus, get my spiritual fix for the week. Then I get back out to the real world and live by the world's rules. No, we follow Christ all the way. The most important thing the church can be doing right now is providing the community that forms people to follow Christ together. We need to be deliberate about this. The world is putting pressure on us. Our families are often capitulating and collapsing because they they get tired of fighting the, the, the mainstream flow of the current. And we need to help equip them to be able to say, no, this is God's truth. We're going to do it this way. That's what the church needs to do the most important. Teaching people how to vote, how to think about things. Sure, that comes into play. But the most important thing is the sort of formation that we're doing or not doing. Yeah, because, you know, and I've had feedback both ways, you know, on the one hand, I will definitely speak about issues, especially if they're, you know, in the news currently, and we'll address those. But most of the time, we're just doing the work of the church, trying to raise people up in faith. And and, and, and instead of teaching them all the questions, and then giving them the answers to those questions and sending them out, the goal is to teach people how to seek that knowledge from God's revealed word. That's exactly right. But at the same time, I've gotten criticism because, well, you know, you're not mentioning X, Y, and Z, or even specifically, you're not dealing with issues because you're not telling us who we need to vote for, as if it's my job to go out and do the research for the candidates. It's right. Not. 
So, so yeah, I, I do see the church's role in that. I do see churches who want to shy away from it, though, because down south where I'm from, I know there are a lot of churches who might as well put a painting of uh, President Trump on the back wall because yeah. of their fervent support of him. Yeah. And I'm sure there are churches that are on the other side of that equation, too. Yep. So it, it's it's a it's a it's a worry for a pastor to say, I'm not, I don't really care about the IRS rules. I just don't want to be up here you know, becoming a talk, another talking head for your political fix. This is a place where you, I guess things are much more eternally uh, important. Yeah, and, and that's right. So when I talked to earlier about, you know, politics in the pulpit, yeah, they belong there. We should be talking about uh, our whole lives and we should help our Christian people think about their political life also from a God standpoint. But they have lives that are far broader than their politics. They've got family concerns. They've got personal concerns. They've got health concerns. And your job is to speak God's truth into their whole entire lives. And as you said, well, the number one task of the church, obviously, is to deliver the forgiveness of sins in Christ, deliver the promise of our our hope in Christ for our resurrection one day when all things are made new. This is what we do in the church. And that's always the driving dominant thing. When a political agenda or when a earthly kind of focus takes over we're we're not doing our job we're we're st- we're stepping out of our role as proclaimers of God's truth and proclaimers of the gospel the gospel has to be the thing that defines what we are and how we operate all those other things fit into that. We don't need to let the gospel trump all that so nothing nothing else gets heard, but all that has to always be taken in light of the dominant preeminence of the gospel. Well, we've come pretty close to the end of our time together. I want to give you just a, a couple of minutes, uh, just any final words for folks out there who are struggling to be both active in the political square, but also just frankly being very fed up with it, thinking that they have absolutely no choice in the upcoming election. Yeah. Uh, I know there are people who are fervent for either side, but there are a lot of people who just feel like out of 330 million people, I kind of thought we could pick a couple better choices. <laughs> what's, some, what's some encouragement for them? Well, it, Christ is Lord. And he is. And this is God's world. It's God's church. It's God's world. And so he's in charge. He knows what he's doing. And sometimes he gives us the leaders that we deserve, unfortunately, and that we have to we have to deal with that. And sometimes the church gets sucked into having to suffer along with everybody else for their failure to follow his will. That's reality. But don't live with fear. Just there's no room for fear about, oh, if this happens, this will happen. No, none of that. So in a sense, we can have a little bit more of a almost an observer role because what happens is finally God's will and who gets elected. It all fits into God's plan. And if the wrong person or the right person gets elected, it's really not going to change the eternal plan that God has for his creation. He's in charge. We can be sure of that. And so Christians should have a whole lot more peace and a whole lot more joy. And then when they have that solidly inside, they can step out in the world with a little more confidence and not get so hung up on which way a discussion goes or how an election goes. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Joel Bierman. He's the systematics professor at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Brother, I know you have to get back to a CTCR meeting or something. So thank you for being on the show and taking the time. My pleasure. Folks, come Monday and we'll finish up Lamentations with the Reverend Dustin Beck as my guest. In that final chapter of Lamentations, which was written as a prayer, it differs from the acrostic poems of the previous chapters, but it still maintains the tone of deep sorrow and mourning. It vividly describes that profound suffering of the people, the loss of their heritage, the desolation of their land. 
and the narrator pleads for God's attention and mercy. He acknowledges their sins and he acknowledges the enduring consequences. That's going to be important for us too, as we reflect on all that we're experiencing. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.